Father in heaven, I believe with all of my heart that you long to communicate with us, your people. You want to make plain your words in such a way that we will not merely be hearers, but we will also be doers of your word. And so, Father, we know that this can't be done by might or natural power. It can only be done through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so in a very special way, we ask for his presence. You promised us that the same way that a child knows how to go to their earthly father and to ask for many things, and that father with joy may give it, how much more you, our heavenly father, will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. And so, Lord, because of this, we not only ask for your spirit, we thank you for sending him. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus, the 26th chapter. And these were words of warning that God gave to his people. And he spoke it with great clarity. And the problem is, is that sometimes God's people, even though they seem to hear, they're slow to follow and to obey. And I want you to see what the Bible says. We're going to look at Leviticus 26. We're going to consider, as you see on the screen, verses 14 to 24. And because there's so many verses, I'll read verse 14, you do 15, I'll do 16, you do 17, we'll just keep it going. So let's go to the book of Leviticus 26, and if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says in the book of Leviticus, the 26th chapter, starting at that 14th verse. In fact, I like verse 13. Let's pick it up from there. I am the Lord your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. Go ahead. Now, question real quick. How much of the commandments did he want them to do? All. All, all right. Verse 15. And if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all thy commandments, but that ye break my covenant. And I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron, and your earth as brass. And if ye walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Your 
And if ye will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, What was God communicating in these verses? Think back all the way to verse 13, and then what we get down to verse 24. What was God communicating? He was encouraging them to keep his commandments. What else? Okay, there were some conditions presented, that's for sure. Anything else? There would be some punishments, or there would be a result for disobedience. There would be a result for disobedience. Do you believe that God was speaking very plainly? God was speaking very plainly, wasn't he? He said, look, I'm the one who delivered you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Who's God talking to here? Is he talking to the Israelites? Does that have anything to do with us? What does it have to do with us? Were you in Egypt? Because, again, look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, listen, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of? So, I just asked you, who was he talking to? You said the Israelites. And then I said, does that have any application to us? Your answer was yes. So I'm asking you, how? Spiritual Israel. So is there a spiritual Egypt? Is there a spiritual Egypt? What is the spiritual Egypt? The world, sin. Now, this is the question I love asking missionaries. What Bible verse do you have to support that answer? You get that? God did not raise us up to tell people our good, well-rehearsed opinions. God raised us up that we might point people to his words. Can I show you what Egypt represents? Go to the book of Exodus chapter 20, that very famous chapter that many, even Seventh-day Adventists, love to read. The Bible says in the book of Exodus, we're looking at the 20th chapter, and I believe the Bible can help us get just a bit of understanding about Egypt from a spiritual standpoint. The Bible says in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and if you're there, please say amen. Amen. All right. In Exodus, the 20th chapter, you will notice that there is an application that we can use to Egypt. I'm not saying this is the sole spiritual application, but this is certainly one of them. The Bible says in verse 1 and 2, it says in verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of? So what does Egypt represent? It represents bondage. Go to John chapter 8. When you look at John the 8th chapter, there's a very particular word that Jesus uses that I believe connects back to this principle that we're looking at in Exodus 20 as it relates to Egypt. The Bible says in the book of John, we're going to what chapter? Very good. We're going to chapter 8. Now watch what the Bible says in John. We're looking at the 8th chapter and we're going to consider verse 32. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 32, if you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? The truth will make you free. Now look at verse 33. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Verse 34. And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whomsoever committeth what? Sin is the servant or bondman to sin. You understand that? Egypt was representative of bondage. What is the bondage that all of us as God's people can relate to? 
the bondage of sin. Have you remembered a time in your life when you were a slave to sin? Can you remember that? Some of you saying, what do you mean past tense, brother? That's my present situation. Some of us are still slaves to sin, even though we come to church. Can you imagine that? God wants us to understand that when we read these things in the Old Testament, they're not just a story of past truth. They're a story of present truth. There are things that are in that Old Testament that, yes, it happened to a very literal physical people in a very literal physical place. But when we begin to spiritually unfold it, we can see these things actually can apply to us. And so here goes God saying, listen, I delivered you from bondage. Has God delivered you from anything? Now, God says, listen, if you know that I delivered you from something, God says, then guess what? You actually owe me. God says, you owe me. There's a homage that I deserve. There's a worship that I deserve. Because I delivered you. I'm the one who spared you. When death was knocking on your door, God put a check on death and still gave us life. And that's why you're here even tonight. So God says, Israelites, don't forget that I delivered you. Don't forget that I was the one that blessed you. Don't forget that you made a profession that you know me and you love me and you want to serve me. And so he says, I call you to do so. And if you don't, God says some bad things can happen to you. And you know what's deep? The reason why it's deep is because God gave this warning to his people. Do you know that this warning, unfortunately, was fulfilled? Because the Israelites actually went into bondage. It was that Babylonian camp. That's literally what he's talking about here in Leviticus 26 to a very large degree. He's speaking about that Babylonian camp that eventually was going to take them captive. My brothers and sisters, there's a Babylon that we're getting ready to go up against. And if we are unfit and unprepared and disobedient like Israel of old, we will be taken captive as well. I believe the warning that God gave. Remember I asked you earlier, I said, was the warning clear? Was the warning comprehensive? Was there anything confusing about the warning? There was nothing confusing. So did the people know? The problem is, is they didn't enter into the experience. Just like a lot of us today. There are probably certain verses that I can go ahead and say to you that in the middle of me saying the verse, you can finish it. Meaning you're aware, you know. But my brothers and sisters, knowing does very little for people. The question is not how much do you know. The question is not how well can you repeat. The question is how much of what you know are you obeying. That is literally the drawing line. It's the dividing line of God's people. Not just simply in times of old, but even today. I am personally not very impressed, especially now, especially, you know, I've been in the movement for a little while. I've been around a lot of big, great people, and I've seen a lot of big, great giants in the movement fall. And one of the things that I'm really learning is it, it really does not matter how much we know. In fact, the truth that is designed to save you can be the very truth that will condemn you in the judgment. Because God is going to say, I'm not going to ask you how much did you memorize. God is not asking us how much is it that you heard over and over again. How well did you repeat my words? God's not going to ask any of those questions. He's going to want to know who was it that obeyed what I said? Who was it that just did what I said? That's really the bottom line, family. 
I want you to think about this. Understanding the warning without the necessary experience is deadly. Understanding the warning without having the necessary experience is absolutely deadly. It was the servant of the Lord that made a comment on this very chapter of Leviticus 26, verses 14 and onward. She said this. She said, the prophet made what? Plain. Plain. See, remember I said it wasn't confusing. She says in Prophets and Kings, page 429, the prophet made plain the fact that our heavenly father allows his judgments to fall that the nations may know themselves to be but men. If ye walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, the Lord had forewarned his people, I, even I, will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. God spoke plainly. God spoke plainly to his people in the past. God is speaking plainly to his people today. And my brothers and sisters, the question is, are we going to get it? And we must cease this patting on the back of oneself. You know, it's amazing. We are such strange creatures because we will reward ourselves on things that are actually not a reward, but a punishment. I'll give you a practical example. I'll use something small. Food. There are certain food groups that some of us already know are not the best food groups for our body because it can make us sick. So what we'll do is we'll say, all right, I'm going to stay away from that food maybe for the rest of my life, for 30 days, for 90 days, or whatever period of days. So then what happens is we do it. 30 days goes by, we didn't eat it, not once. 90 days go by, we didn't touch it, not once. A whole year goes by, we did not touch it. And eventually what happens is we get in this strange mindset that says, you know, it's been 30 days, 90 days, it's been one year since I've eaten that thing. I think I need to reward myself. we will call a punishment a reward. And we'll actually say, you know what? I'm going to reward myself. In truth, we're getting ready to punish ourselves. But the devil can trick our minds that we'll say, you know what? I've been victorious for 30 days. I've been victorious for 90 days. I've been victorious for one year. Certainly, it's okay if I go back to it just once. Now, the Bible says... In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the Bible says it is only those who are faithful. It didn't say for 30 days. It did not say for 90 days. It didn't even say for one year or 10 years or 50 years. It says those who are faithful unto death, those are the ones that shall receive the crown of life. Don't pat yourself on the back because you did good or did better than other people. I've learned this statement a long time ago, and I pray you take it to your mental bank. Better is often the greatest enemy of best. Let me repeat that. Better is often the greatest enemy of best. Sometimes we're just so happy that we're doing better than everybody else that we never accomplish or even aim for the best of what God has called us to do. Better can become an enemy of best. 
Jesus never called us to focus on the fact we're doing better than other people and I do ministry better than them and our organization is better than other organizations. My wife, my husband is better than most wives or husbands. God says, don't even waste your time. Why are you comparing dust with dust? God says you need to focus on the best. And there was one who walked on this earth that led a best example for you and I, and that man's name is Jesus. That should be our focus. And so what the Lord wants us to understand is that don't fall into this trap because a lot of people are falling into it. God knows his greatest problem in these very last moments in earth's history. He has a lot of people who know a lot but obey very little. And that is a great crisis that we're in right now. We know what it is to be a good husband, but for some reason we're still fighting and frustrating the power of God that we might actually become good husbands. Some of us know exactly what it is to be a good wife, but we're fighting and we're frustrating the power of God because we're still not submitting to the power of his voice that you might be that wife that is termed queen of the household. God wants us to understand we know so much. When you go to most ministries today, I'm not just talking about husband and wife, even ministries. Well, how does your ministry work? How does it function? Oh, we do this, we do this, we do this. Well, actually, that's not exactly how it was written in the blueprint. God said that we should be doing this. God says we should be doing this. God says this should be our focus. God says this is what we should be teaching. And we have this thing about, well, we're doing 60% of what God says, while most are doing 40, 30, 20. We're doing 80% of what God says, while most people are just doing 60, 40, and 30. We have this way of patting ourselves on the back because we're doing better than everybody else. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Don't forget this text. This text is a very important text. It's actually very practical. I want to make you free from some of the deceptions that Satan has instigated amongst the people of God. Look at what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians. We're going to what chapter? Very good. Chapter 10. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians. We're looking at the 10th chapter. Watch the text very carefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And watch what it says right there in verse 12. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. The Bible says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, what are those last three words? Are not wise. The people who make it through the final scenes of Earth's history, according to Daniel 12, are those who are wise. And so if we're preparing for the final crisis, if we're asking God to pour out his latter rain, I can guarantee you it's not even a drop is going to fall on anybody if we're still busy comparing ourselves among ourselves. You and I are not to look to the right or to the left of what is our example of what we should be doing. You need to look unto the hills from whence comes your help, knowing that your help comes from the Lord. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. This is where our eyes need to be fixed, my brothers and sisters. And I don't know about you, but as masculine and straight a man as I am, I find Jesus to be very attractive. I love to look at him. 
I love to watch his character. I find he spills out more and still more from my lips every day that I talk to either stranger or friend or enemy. And I'm telling you the truth. We must get to a place that we behold Christ so much that we love to talk about him. Just the thought of that name, Jesus, should put a smile on your face. He becomes not merely the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He becomes your best friend. That's what Jesus wants to be to you. And I promise you, when you fix your eyes on him, all the other so-called examples of life, all the other so-called examples of ministry will pale in his presence. The Bible makes it very clear. We are living in some very serious and solemn times. We're living in the very last moments of earth's history. And God wanted us to study those agitations. God wanted us to pay attention to the agitations because there were many agitations. I mean, are you seeing all the things that are happening in our world right now? It's getting to the point that even the preachers and the teachers of righteousness are having a problem. We can't keep up on our slides and our documents fast enough on how much prophecy just keeps unfolding daily. I mean, I got an article that I'm going to put up on the screen in a moment. The thing just came out hours ago. It's not even 24 hours old yet. Just constantly, more and more and more, just keeps unfolding. God says, study those agitations. Don't ever take your eyes off of it because God wants to keep us in an awake state for a specific purpose. So think about this. When we understand this, we're told in councils to writers and editors, it says, agitate, agitate, agitate. The subjects which we present to the world must be to who? To us, a living reality. Councils to writers and editors, page 40, paragraph 3. This is one of the great things that I would love to ask you, is do you believe we need to tell the world of all the prophetic events that are happening and help them get ready? Do you believe we need to do that? Amen. Amen. Question is, are you doing that? Are you getting ready? You understand that? These things must become a reality to who? To us. You ever met a salesman? Now, I met good salesmen, I met bad salesmen. And all I'm telling you, family, is that sometimes, some people, the way they talk to you, you ever talk with somebody and you can tell they are trying to sell you something? You ever met somebody like that? Like, this person's just trying to get over and get some money out of my pocket. You know, those are the people that usually don't do too well, right? Because they're not going to win our business. Because we can see you're not even caring about me. You're just trying to sell your products so you can make money and prosper yourself. But you haven't met a good salesman? I find the best salesmen are the ones who are selfless. Is there such thing? A salesman who's selfless. Yes, there is. It is possible that you can sometimes want to provide something to people with such a passion because you know that it's going to actually, actually better their lives that it actually comes across in your communication. You can actually see you care about me. What a strange thing. And those are the people we gladly give our business to. Isn't that right? I gladly give my business to any man or woman like that. You see, when it becomes a reality to us, it's a lot easier to share it with everybody else. You become the genuine salesperson. A salesperson is just a communicator. They're not a slick snake. Not all salespeople are like that. Some of them are genuine communicators that know how to identify something good and impart it to other people. That's a good salesperson. This thing is not a reality to us, then we're not going to give it, or if we give it, it's not going to have the great effect that he wants it to have. And so I agree 100% with the servant of the Lord, where she says, 
the subjects which we present to the world must be to us a living reality. Now, what does that mean exactly? Think about it this way. I'm going to put these four things on the screen. And for those of you who either want to take your camera out or if you want to write them down or what have you, you can go ahead and do that. These are various agitations that are happening in our world and they keep happening with great succession. Obviously, we have economic agitations. Right over here, we have ourselves the economic agitations. Things that are happening in our world right now where the Bible already showed us the rich are going to get richer, the poor are going to get poorer, and who's getting eliminated? Oh, come on, family. Students of prophecy, you're supposed to know the answer on that one. James made it very clear. The rich are going to get richer. The poor are going to get poorer. So who's the class that's going to start being eliminated? The middle class. Have you been looking at CNN? Have you been paying attention to all of the various statements that's talking about our economy and how that group called the middle class is the one that is disappearing fast and furious? And what happens is when the rich get richer, they don't want to lose their riches. So when the beast power comes along and puts the pressure, either bow or we take away your riches, many of them are going to buckle. The rich get richer and they're going to want to stay rich. The poor, they get poorer. You see, Solomon said it nice. Go to the book of Proverbs 30. You remember this? Look at what Solomon said. It's the incredible trap because it's funny. God's will, God's desire is neither for us to be rich or poor. He wanted us to be right there in the middle. And it's interesting because it's the middle that's disappearing. Notice Proverbs 30. Notice what the Bible says right there in verse 7. Proverbs, we're looking at what chapter? Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 30, right there in verse 7. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Watch. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither what? Poverty nor riches. Watch that. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Now, watch what it says in verse 9. Lest I be what? Full. If I'm full, what is the temptation? To do what? To deny God. You get that? Do we see that happening amongst the rich? Do we see that the more rich we are, is the more we begin to say it's my money and it's not God's money? It's my house and not God's house. It's my car and not God's car. It's my investments. It's pretty amazing how immediately we can begin denying God. It doesn't always mean that you say there is no God, because once you take over what God has given to you, you're basically saying there is no God. That's a great temptation for the rich. But what else does he say in verse 9? He says, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? But then what else does he say? Or lest I be poor. And what's the temptation for the poor? And they steal and take the name of my God in vain. When you're lacking, you see, rich and poor. These are things we need. We really need to study this out. Being poor means you don't even have enough to take care of your needs. That's why it's not God's will for his people to be poor. He said the poor would be with us always. He's stating a fact, but that wasn't his will. What God is saying is, if I'm poor... I don't have to even supply my needs, and therefore my temptation is that I'm going to be tempted to do something dishonest to supply my needs. 
And so it's interesting. Give me neither riches nor poverty, which means you can only be there in the middle. And that's the very one that Satan wants to get rid of. Give me just what's convenient for me. That's the middle. I don't need to have this overabundance because I'm going to be tempted. I certainly don't want to be under what I need because I'm going to be tempted. But if I have exactly what I need, I'm content. Isn't that interesting? And so here it is that inspiration makes it clear. In these very last moments of earth's history, there's going to be temptations. There's going to be agitations on the economy. But then there's also going to be moral agitations. Are we not living in such a time as that today? It seems like man is calling the shots. Man even says whether he's a man or not. Women are saying that whether they're women or not. There's a little cartoon picture. Did it for the purpose of humor, but it's actually kind of hurtful when you really think about it. And I believe with all of my heart, we're living in a time where the people of God need to make it plain. We are living in a time, there was a little cartoon given of a woman having a baby. And when the woman had the baby, the child comes out. And when the child comes out, the husband's in the back saying, what's the baby, male or female? And the doctor's answer was, I don't know. They haven't decided yet. That's the world we live in today. That's the world we live in today. And so now we are going to tell God what we are. We are going to tell God who we can marry. We are going to tell God what is actually morally right and what is, quote unquote, morally wrong. Oh, how true it was what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter five. Notice what the Bible says. When you look at Isaiah, the fifth chapter, notice what Isaiah said. It was a 100 percent true statement. Yay, prophecy. Isaiah says in the book of Isaiah chapter 5, notice what the Bible says. We're living in these times. Moral agitations are happening all throughout our world. The Bible says in Isaiah, we're looking at the fifth chapter. Consider what it says right there in verse 20. The Bible says in Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe unto them that call what? What do they call evil? Good. And what do they call good? What they call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God says he puts a woe on those people. We're living in a time right now where the things that the Bible calls evil, people are calling it good. The things that the Bible calls good, the people are calling it evil. And we are wondering why we are seeing more killing. We are wondering why we're seeing more stealing. We are wondering why we're seeing more hate. We're wondering why we're seeing more crime. We're seeing all of these things because once man deems himself God, he introduces confusion to the land. And that's the time we're living in right now. So we have ourselves economic agitations. We have moral agitations. We have political agitations and we have atmospheric agitations. And of course, we all know about that. You all were praying for me. Another hurricane is coming and all these different things. Brothers and sisters, the reality is, is that our world is turning upside down and we are finding that it's getting more frequent, it's getting more disastrous, it's getting more powerful, and it's not going to stop until it reaches its climax. And the question is, what is that climax? And the answer is very simple. That climax is right here. We are told... The substitution of the laws of men for the law of God. The exaltation by merely human authority of Sunday in place of the Bible Sabbath is the what act? The last act in the drama. Volume 7 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 141. This is where all this stuff is leading to. Now, it would be enough if it was simply prophecy taking place in the world. 
prophecy being fulfilled in the world. But my brothers and sisters, it's not just that. There's prophecy being fulfilled, not merely in the world, but prophecy being fulfilled in the church. And God wanted us to pay attention to both of these things. Go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, the apostle Paul, he spelled it out very beautifully. He made it very plain. It would be very difficult to miss it. In 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 4, Paul is talking about when God's people left Egypt and were on their way to Canaan land and that rock that was following them, providing their water, providing them food, that rock was none other than Christ. But then from verses 5 to 10, Paul then shows how much they appreciated God's provisions. They murmured, they complained, they committed sin and fornication and all these things and suffered terrible judgments. But then Paul says this thing in verse 11 that we would do well to consider. What does he say in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10? He says, now how many of these things? He says, now all these things were what? All these things happen unto them for? What does the word in samples mean? We would say example, right? Now, let's just think about it. There was a whole bunch of sinful activity the children of Israel were doing. Was that supposed to be an example for you and I? Is that the example you'd want to leave for me? God forbid, right? So it's not merely an example per se. It's actually an ensample. The Greek word is to pose. It means types. Every time you have a type, you also have to have an anti-type. Whenever you think of a type, think of a symbol. Whenever you think of an anti-type, think of a reality. Today, was the sun out? When you walk outside and that sun shines on your body, you know what it puts on the ground? A type. It's called a shadow. That shadow is a reflection of a reality, a real body. You get that? So every time you go outside, you're literally walking through typology. Every time you go outside, every time that sun shines on your body and you see that little shadow there, you can say, oh, look at that, type. And then you can say, anti-type. We do this with little children when we teach the sanctuary. And all the children outside skipping around, type, type. You know, it's, it's, it's really nice. You know, whatever, the type and anti-type. So again, symbol, reality. You get that? Now, Paul says, all these things happen unto them for types. And every type has to have an anti-type. So who's the anti-type? The rest of the verse. It says, now all these things happen unto them for types, for symbols. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So that's referring to God's people in the last days, the end of the world. You get that? That's why I told you, when you read these stories of the children of Israel and what they went through coming out of Egypt and all these things, it's not just past truth, it's present truth. We're watching what a lot of God's people are going to do in these very last moments of earth's history, towards the end of time. You get that? Now let's look at some of the things they did. Notice, in the Southern Works, page 44, it says the history of the wilderness life of God's chosen people was chronicled for the benefit of the Israel of God till when? The close of time. Now watch this. What are some of the things that happened during the days of God's people? What are some of the things that happened? Well, number one, there was rebellion against, what was that right there? What's those two words? 
rebellion against health reform. Exodus 16, 1 through 4, and Numbers 11, 4 through 6, and 31 to 35. God provided a lovely health provision for his people. Does anybody know what it was called? It was called manna. You remember they came out of Egypt and they started getting those little belly growls. And as soon as they got those belly growls, they actually got slavery flashbacks. They actually started thinking to themselves, man, because I'm so hungry, I actually would prefer to go back into slavery and eat what I want than to be free and have a restricted diet. Can you imagine that? This was the mindset of God's people. God's people. And so it is God says in his loving, patient, merciful way. He says, all right, I see what the people are doing. He says, tell them I'm going to rain down something from heaven called manna. The word manna means what is it? That's why every morning when you get morning manna, you get on your knees, you go before God, and you say, Lord, what is it that you want me to learn about you today? That's the principle of manna, morning manna. Get up every morning. Lord, what is it that I need for the challenges and the trials that's coming to me today? Now, when that started to happen, here it is. By the time you get to Numbers 11, they're complaining to Moses about God's provision. God gave them something better than the flesh pots of Egypt, but they didn't want that. They wanted the other stuff, and God gave it back to them, and we know that story very well. By the time you get to Numbers 11, 31 to 35, they are stricken with a plague, and many of them have died, allowing appetite to control. We must be careful of allowing our bellies to be our gods. And so this is what happened. This is the side of the people of God's history we are not to repeat, when God provides you with something better, family, learn to appreciate it. When God gives you an understanding of principles of health and he shows you a better way of eating, a better way of living, don't shun it. Don't hate it, family. It's God's simple little message of love saying, my desire. That's why I love 3 John in verse 2. He starts with beloved. He wants you to know I love you. I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. That's what God wants for you. But it requires cooperation. Not only that, we know that there was a rejection of God's messengers. Numbers 16, 1 to 3. Numbers 26, 9 and 10. God is a God of order, family. And God sets up individuals in positions of authority to be under shepherds, to be leaders, to guide the sheep and keep them in safe pastures. And when God raises up these messengers, and a messenger could be a pastor, a messenger can certainly be a lay individual, and certainly a messenger can be God's delegated prophet for the remnant. And when God raises up these messengers, we must make sure that we do not become modern day Dathan, Korahs, and Abirams, that we begin to fight back against God's messengers and say, listen, I got God's spirit. I have the testimony of Jesus just like her. My words are just as authoritative as her words. Brothers, you got to be careful of making yourself an appointed prophet, making yourself an appointed messenger, questioning the authority of God's words. This is what happened in times past. God says there's going to be a people in the last days amongst my people that's going to question my messenger. They're going to question the messages. They're going to question the truth for this time. And they will rise up. And we know the story. The Bible says that that earth would open up. And those rebellious souls 
were swallowed up. And they didn't just die a temporal death. They died with an appointment for eternal death. Why would any of us let such a fate fall on our laps? God says, I have given this unto my people that they may understand, that they may see. Don't follow this side of history. It is not just that. Oh, my brothers and sisters, false worship as a result of worldly laity and weak leadership. Exodus 32, 1 through 6 and 21 through 24. And that's exactly what happened. The people wanted to come to church and they wanted to make it like a good old party lifestyle. And the leadership, unfortunately, was so weak that they gave in to the people and they gave them what they wanted rather than what they needed. God says there's going to be a repeat. I'm going to have many leaders that are in my church that are going to turn away from my truth and they're going to start to feed the flock strange food. God said that this is going to happen. He says there's going to be many people in my church that are going to want to bring the world amongst the saints because they're still not converted. God said this is going to happen. I remember when I came in, I was into hip-hop, brothers and sisters, and I wanted hip-hop everything. The same way people like salt on all their food. I want a hip-hop for all my music. If I'm going to listen to gospel, it has to be hip-hop gospel. If I'm going to listen to a hymn, it has to be a hip-hop hymn. And I never heard of a hip-hop hymn. But that's just how much I loved hip-hop. What I'm saying is, is, so when I came into the church, certainly I was listening to hip-hop rap, gospel rap, and this, that, and the other, because I, I got to keep the hip-hop flavor. But God was showing me, Dwayne, that's an attachment to the world I need to cut. And so I remember I started listening to these boring hymns. And I did not like them. You know when I started liking hymns? It was funny. Proverbs 4 and verse 7, you know the Bible says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. You know what God did for me? This literally changed my whole view on hymns. One day, we had a youth service where we did history of the hymns. History of the hymns. And the whole purpose of that youth service was all of the young people had to study the stories behind the hymns. And every young person would have to go up and they would go ahead and say, there was a husband and a wife and they had such and such amount of children. The wife and the children went on a boat and they would go on to the ocean. And when they went on to the ocean and they would tell the whole story of how the boat went down and eventually the little children drowned and died. And then next thing you know, when the wife had to report that tragic event to her husband, that husband began to say, when peace like a river attendeth my way and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I remember the first time I said, wait a minute, that's the story behind that song? Yes. And all of a sudden I found myself, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, 
It is well, it is well with my soul. I found myself enjoying it. I find myself connecting with it. And after that, I said, how many other songs have got stories like this behind it? The next thing you know, I went away from my so-called hip-hop hymns, and I began to love those genuine hymns because of the story behind the song. Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is that, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people that are the part of the laity. They're going to want to bring the world into the church. And those are our opportunities, not simply to rebuke them, but to educate them. Let them see the beauty of holiness. It's very easy to tell somebody, this is the church of God. We don't do that. I don't know how much understanding you just imparted. Let them see. You know why we say amen instead of clapping and applauding everybody after they sing? Can I tell you why, young friend, why we just say amen? Why is it that we don't behave like the concerts, like the rock concerts and the hip-hop concerts, when everybody woo-hoo, woo-hoo, and, and clapping hands? Why don't we just sit those young people down and say, let me impart some education? Do you know what amen means? Amen means so let it be done. And when somebody sings, they're not in church for the purpose of entertainment. They're in the church for worship. And so when they sing, we are to join in with them in that worship experience. And as we are all collectively worshiping God and singing great is thy faithfulness or whatever that song may be, when it is over, it is not for us to applaud because nobody was performing. We say amen because we stand in agreement with the song that was sung and we're saying, Lord, let the words of that song, so let it be in my life. Do you know how many young people would say, that's why you say amen? Yeah, that's why we say amen. Sometimes it's just imparting education. God wants us to understand that unfortunately, there's going to be so many that's going to say, we want the world, and we're going to bring it into the church. And God says that is our opportunity, that we can educate, educate, educate. God makes it clear that in these last moments of verse history, we're going to see prophecy fulfilled without, and we're going to see prophecy fulfilled within. We're going to watch everything, as it were, seem to go absolutely out of control. And what do you do in those situations and those circumstances? Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. In the book of Hebrews, I, I don't want to super simplify it. In other words, I'm not saying that there aren't some actions that we need to take place when we watch all of these things that are happening. In Hebrews, chapter 12, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider verses 1 and 2. You see, Hebrews 12 is foundational to what Ever response we give when we see the world going upside down or when we see those in the church going upside down. It doesn't matter. In either one of these cases, Jesus says, pay attention to this principle. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, watch what the Bible says. It says, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason God tells us look unto Jesus is because Jesus understands a principle. It's found in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. The more that you look unto Jesus, Jesus knows by beholding you become changed. You're going to start doing the same things I would do. You're going to respond the same way I would respond. And that's what he wants. Because we're going to see things in the world get worse. We're going to see things, yes, in the church. And often it's going to get worse. But it doesn't stop there. You see, again, yes, we're going to see rebellion against health reform. We're going to see rejection of God's messengers. We're going to see false worship as a result of worldly laity and weak leadership. And sadly, we're going to see sexual sin like never before. I marvel at how much adultery. I find that more than I preach and than I teach, I counsel. More than my wife and I preach and teach, we counsel, we counsel, 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 counsel. And often we are counseling with people with broken homes. Husband cheating on wife, wife cheating on husband, all in the church. And God says, this ought not be an enemy have done this. And so we find ourselves in a very serious conundrum. Now, what is all of this leading to? Again, notice this. Observe. Volume 1 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 609. In the last vision given me, I was shown, now brothers and sisters, this is serious, I was shown the startling fact that but a small portion of those who now profess the truth will be sanctified by it and be saved. Small portion. Now watch. It says, I was pointed back to ancient Israel, but two of the adults of that vast army that left Egypt entered the land of Canaan. Modern Israel are in greater danger of forgetting God and being led into idolatry than were his ancient people. Again, it's very likely that there might be some, even one in this room that says, brother, you haven't given me a single verse or a single quote that I don't already know. But you remember how we started our message? It's not about what you know. The question is, what are you doing with what you know? That's the real question. Because according to the prophetic pen, God says there's going to be a lot of people that know and are not doing that unfortunately are going to bust hell wide open. And that's not God's desire for you. And that's certainly not God's desire for me. I have told my family over and over again, I tell my brothers and sisters everywhere I go, if there's one thing, especially over the past two years, that God has made crystal clear to my mind is he really wants you to be happy. I'm serious. The more I study the Bible, the more I study the spirit of prophecy, he really wants you to be happy. And the great problem is that most of us are not genuinely happy people. And that's not God's fault. A lot of us are not content. A lot of us know how to put on the happy Sabbath face, but we're not really happy. My church knows me very well. Every time I go up to Florence Seventh-day Adventist Church and I get ready to go up to preach, everybody knows what Brother Lemon's going to say. When I go up there, I say, happy Sabbath, everyone. And then they all say, happy Sabbath. And then they know exactly what I'm going to say next. 
I say, are you really happy? And they start smiling, or some of them put their heads down. They're like, nope, I'm not really happy. Isn't it amazing how we can learn to, like, lie? And it just becomes commonplace? Like, probably 90% of us in this room, happy Sabbath! And maybe up to 90%, we're not happy. We're sad, we're broken, we're hurt, and we're miserable. And we need some serious help. Now, I'm not saying that you're supposed to pour out your whole life story on somebody. You know, hey, how you doing? Happy Sabbath, friend. Well, actually, come, sit down. Let me, let me tell you. You know, I'm not suggesting that we do that, or at least not with everybody. But my point is, is sometimes I've learned to say this. Brother Lemon, how you doing? Or they say, happy Sabbath, Brother Lemon. I'll say, hey, pleasant Sabbath to you. They may say, how you doing? I'm not always going to say, I'm doing great. There's times that I might be in the middle of a war. And if I'm in the middle of the war, I say, listen, God is good, but keep your brother in prayer. I'll tell the truth. God is good. Keep your brother in prayer. Did I give you my business? No. But did I lie to you? No. What I'm saying is that God wants us to understand that there's real happiness, genuine joy, beautiful, sweet health that he wants to give to every single one of us. But it's not going to come from faking. And it's certainly not going to come from lying. We're going to have to come face to face with ourselves. You see, with all of these prophecies, I had a whole bunch here, but I'm going to pass it. I had like, you all know this little image here, right? What comes next? The feet of iron and clay. What's that? What is it? What does it represent? Divided nations of the earth, the ten divided kingdoms, etc. The feet of iron and clay represents the combining of church and state. Okay. It's very easy. Uh, if you go in there, you look at the legs, the legs of iron. Rome was a political or state power. When you look at the clay, clay represents God's people or church. So when you see a mingling of the iron and the clay, you're seeing a mingling of churchcraft and statecraft. You're seeing that combo there. Ellen White says it very beautifully. She actually says it right here. Manuscript release, book 15, page 39. She says the mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. This union is weakening all the power of the churches. This investing the church with the power of the state will bring what? Will bring evil results. Men have almost passed the point of God's forbearance. They have invested their strength in politics. Mercy. They have invested their strength in what? Politics. But it's going to bring evil results. It says they have invested their strength in politics and have united with the papacy. But the time will come when God will punish those who have made void his law and their evil work will recoil upon themselves. God prophesied through that image in Daniel that the very last movement before the coming of Christ and his kingdom is going to be the efforts to reunite church and state. And we're living in those times right now. And if you study Revelation 13, it has to come from the bottom up. It's going to come from the people. The people are going to press in the nation. The Supreme Court, the judicial power, which is already predominantly Catholic. And they're going to go ahead and stand in agreement with what the people want. And the votes are going to go. And before you know it, the image of the beast is going to be set up. And it's going to bring about a persecution. Now watch this. The key is this. What does God want us to do? about all these things that are getting ready to come to pass. Two things. The first, Proverbs 23. 
Go to Proverbs 23. We're going to wind it down. Got to let you go. Proverbs 23. There are two things that are very key that God wants so that we can truly be a people prepared to meet our God. Proverbs 23, are you there? Okay, look at Proverbs 23. The first thing that God wants this is the first thing that God wants. Proverbs 23, 26. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 26, God makes clear what he wants. He says, my son, do what? Give me thine heart. God says, I don't want your actions. God says, I want your heart. There's a reason the seal of God goes in the forehead. God says, I want your heart. Do you really believe me? Do you really trust me? Do you really know that I have your best interest at heart, even when some of the worst things that your mind can imagine happens to you? Will you not take away your heart from me? And so the number one thing God wants is your heart, because if he doesn't get your heart, he can't bring you in his house. It is only those with a new heart that God can trust in his home. The condition of our natural heart is that it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God cannot let a heart like that in his home. You wouldn't let a heart like that in your home. If you knew, if somebody knocked on your door, hello, I am deceitful above all things and I am desperately wicked. May I come in? You would say, absolutely not. Can I just come in for five minutes? Nope. You can't even come in for five seconds. You wouldn't even let him finish his sentence. You would close that door right quick. God says, well, that's the point. I know your heart. And God says, the natural human heart, I cannot trust that in my house. That's why a new heart I must give you. But in order for me to give you the new heart, you must give me permission to take away that stony heart. That's what God wants. When he says, my son, give me thine heart, he's not saying, give me your trust and all these things, because you and I don't even know how to do that. It would be like a yo-yo, you know, we'll throw our heart to God and just pull it back. And so what God wants is he wants permission. That's why Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So give me permission to come in. You get that? God says, if you give me permission to come through your heart's door, I will take away that stony heart. And I'll give you the heart of flesh. Because you gave me permission. God's a gentleman. That's why he knocks. He doesn't kick the door open. He knocks. And he says, let me in. So true preparation for the final crisis begins with us allowing God to take away this wicked, contradictory, selfish, prideful heart that we all have. And let him do an absolute miracle with it. Create in me a clean heart. That's point number one. Point number two, Mark chapter one. This is the other thing God wants. God wants your heart. Knowing that time is wrapping up, God wants your heart. But now look at Mark, the first chapter. Look right there at verses 14 and 15. This is the other thing God wants. Mark 1, 14 and 15. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. amen. All right. In Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, look at what the Bible says. The Bible says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, the text says, Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time 
is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. When Jesus saw that John was in prison, the Bible says Jesus did something. When he saw prophecy being fulfilled, what was he doing? You tell me, what was he doing? Talk to me. What do you, what do you, what do you see him doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Is that right? Okay. According to verse 15, why was he doing it? Because the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is now at hand. So notice, as Jesus saw prophecy being fulfilled, he went into massive active service preaching the gospel. Do you see that? So God says, number one, I want your heart. And then he says, and number two, I need you to get to work. And I need you to go tell others that I want their heart. You understand that? Now, in order for us to do this, it's going to require power. In order for us to give the everlasting gospel with the kind of magnitude that God wants it to be given, it is not going to just require early rain power. It's going to require latter rain power. For us to help the world and those who are dying in the church to help their eyes truly be open and to understand where we are in time that we may know exactly what we should be doing, it is going to require early rain power. But we're also going to need to receive latter rain power that we might give a very, very loud cry. And so... What do we need to do to prepare to receive this power? I'm going to give it to you so simple, you can't miss it. And I'm going to give it to you in a way that you can actually meditate on it throughout the night. You ready? There were 16 things that the disciples did in the upper room that prepared them to receive the early rain. If we do these 16 things, it will help prepare us to receive the latter rain. We actually can go through these fairly quickly. We're not going to build a lot on it. Number one, they humbled their hearts in true repentance and confessed their unbelief. That was one of the things they did in the upper room. They humbled their hearts in true repentance and they confessed their unbelief. Where is it that you have still not repented, truly? What sin is still in your life that you have not truly turned away from? Then, what is it that you honestly can say you still don't believe God, you still don't trust him? He who comes to God must believe that he is. Where is it that you still don't trust him? Where is it you still don't believe? Number two, as they called to remembrance the words that Christ had spoken to them before his death, they understood more fully their meaning. Truths which had passed from their memory were again brought to their minds and these they repeated to one another. They repeat the words of God one to another, the truths that was brought to their memory. They went over the truths that they studied at one time and they went over it again. 
They reproached themselves for their misapprehension of the Savior. They truly had a sorrow for their sins. You don't have to write this down. I'm going to give you a reference where you can find all of it. But they were comforted by the thought that they were forgiven. All of this was happening in the upper room. All of this. As they meditated upon his pure, holy life, they felt that no toil would be too hard, no sacrifice too great, if only they could bear witness in their lives to the loveliness of Christ's character. This is what they were talking about. This is what they were thinking about in the upper room, preparing to receive the rain. They determined that so far as possible, they would atone for their unbelief by bravely confessing him before the world. These were the resolves that were being made in the upper room. The disciples prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet men and in their daily intercourse to speak words that would lead sinners to Christ. This is what they were doing. This was their resolve. Putting away how many? All. all differences, all desire for the supremacy. They came close together in Christian fellowship. This is what they were doing to prepare to receive the rain. They drew nearer and nearer to God. And as they did this, they realized what a privilege had been theirs in being permitted to associate so closely with Christ. Sadness filled their hearts as they thought of how many times they had grieved him by their slowness of comprehension, their failure to understand the lessons that for their good, he was trying to teach them. These are the things that they were doing to prepare for the rain. These days of preparation were days of deep heart searching. The disciples felt their spiritual need and cried to the Lord for the holy unction that was to fit them for the work of soul saving. They did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. And in closing, they were weighted with the burden of the salvation of souls. Where can you read all of this? You can read it from Acts of the Apostles, pages 36 and 37. 16 things that they did. The next paragraph says, the Spirit of God came down. We're talking about latter rain preparation. In all honesty, these 16 things right here is all that needs to be built upon for the rest of the weekend. Because that's, that's what's going to get us ready for the rain. It's nothing else. We have to understand where we are in time, see our need to put away the distractions, put away a lot of other things that are keeping us from falling into the arms of Jesus. My brothers and sisters, this thing is not difficult. God is speaking plain again to his people. The question is very simple. Will you cooperate? Will you really cooperate? Because you know what that means. That means that some of us right now that are mad at your husbands, you got to ask God to take that anger away and give you a spirit of peace. Somehow work in your heart to forgive even what appears to be unforgivable. I said appears to be. There are many husbands that just got to reconcile with your brides. Can't keep going home and letting these arguments, the bitter, the anger and the resentment and all these things just exist in the heart. Can't do it. 
There's children that need to reconcile with their siblings, with their parents, parents with children. And then when we get into the brethren, oh, forget about it. God says all this competitiveness that even exists in ministry. God says we got to work together. And yes, that means you got to open up your bank account to us and we got to open our bank account to you. We got to learn how to share all our resources. They made sure they had all things in common. That's what I read in Acts chapter 4. It's not that God can't do it. The question is, do you trust him enough to let him get it done? And that is really my heart's plea to every single one of us in this room. You don't need a whole lot more preaching and teaching. What you need to start doing is really looking at your heart and saying, where in the world am I rebelling against God? What is it that I have not surrendered yet? We just came back from Meet Ministry, and I tell you the truth, it was God's ordinance. All the ministers that were there. That was like a minister's camp meeting. A lot of ministers and ministries were all there under that same tent. And God in his providence gave a tremendous focus, the whole camp meeting, love and unity. Love and unity. That's the only way this work gets finished. I promise you, if we keep doing things the way we're doing it right now, everybody beating each other up over the internet, and everybody's taking these undercut stabs and jabs at each other and all this other stuff, if we keep that stuff going on, I guarantee you we'll be here at least for another 50 years. Guarantee. But if we want to hasten the coming of the Lord, it's time for people to start coming together, praying. And I'm not talking about dropping truth. I'm not dropping truth for anybody. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm not dropping truth for anybody. But the thing is, don't drop truth. Some of us are making up our own truths and making it like it is scripture. Those things need to be put away. God wants to make a clear demonstration. And I'm going to talk about that demonstration tomorrow. It's a beautiful demonstration. You see, I'm going to show you one more fulfillment of prophecy, especially inside the church. And this one is glorious. And this is the one that God is still waiting on. And so if you know you're under the sound of my voice right now, and I'm just speaking to you really from my heart. If you know there's still rebellion. I'm talking to every young person as well as every older individual. It's not only young people that rebel. Older people rebel too. If some of us still have bitterness and anger and resentment towards our spouses and towards others, maybe you got a parent you haven't forgiven, some relative or friend, fellow worker, whatever it may be. If you know you got those dividing lines that are still existing in your heart right now, tonight, what I am appealing to you trust Jesus plead with him Lord come into my heart take my anger away give me your forgiveness help me to see my offenders like how you looked at me when I was offending you the Bible says that God sent his son for us when we were his enemies as Romans 5 and verse 10 can you imagine that God would let his son die for his enemies you can do it too. You can love your enemy. You can pray for those who persecute you. You just need a heart transplant. And God is the only one that can do it. And so if you see your weakness, if you see your frailty, if you know my home is messed up, my heart is messed up, I can see the areas where I'm frustrated the gospel. And tonight, I am pleading with God.
Lord, come into my heart and take these things out of me. He's more than willing to do it. He's been wanting to do it for quite some time. And if you're willing to let him do it tonight, if you're in that category, if you're not in that category, please stay seated. I'm speaking to those who are in that category. If you know you are in that category and there's still stuff going on in your heart that you know God needs to clean it up, I'm inviting you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. Whoever you are, I want to pray for you. It's very late in Earth's history. It's very late, family. Very late. But thank the Lord, not too late. So you're standing because God wants to give you real victory. He wants to walk you through step by step. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my weekend talking about. How to walk in real, true, practical victory. Under the power of that early rain to prepare us to receive that latter rain. And that which is impossible with men, praise God, is possible with God. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we are so grateful for tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you have heard us and we have heard you. And Lord, we don't want to be like those Israelites, making your words plain. But for some reason, we're just still frustrating the gospel. Father, I have no idea how deep the wounds and the pain is of all these precious souls under the sound of my voice. I know my pain very well. But Father, I am grateful that your son Jesus is truly a balm that provides the most effectual healing. And there's no problem, there's no cut, there's no wound that is so deep that you do not have the perfect salve through the blood of Jesus to bring complete healing. I pray for every individual under the sound of my voice that is in that battle, that war, where they hear the voice of Satan constantly telling them, you can't do it, impossible. Maybe for everybody else, but not for you. I pray that you'll help us to remember your wonderful words. These are the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil and to give you an expected end. Help us to remember that every negative thought, every evil wish that comes to our mind comes from the evil one. Help us not to entertain his suggestions that we might claim your promises. Lift up our voice in song. Cry out and call out unto you. And Father, please give us real victory. Time is almost finished. Help us to reflect the lovely image of Jesus as we should. This is our prayer, Lord, that we ask tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.